Heroes Radio, a show by working people for working people in New York City. I am Lupita Romero, and I'm one of your hosts tonight. And I'm Danny Catch. I'll be your other host. Today is, of course, July 4th, but it's a pretty different July 4th this year than usual patriotic celebrations. Clearly, the COVID pandemic has led fireworks shows to be canceled in many places around the country. But also this year, July 4th has become a day of protest, right, Lupita? That's right. In major cities, a lot of protests continue. Um, Black Lives Matter organizers continue to protest systemic racism in many forms, from commemorating the 4th of July protests with demonstrations to defund the police, as well as tearing down Confederate statues, and in major cities, closing down detention centers. Um, But aside from that, we're going to continue our coverage around this ongoing Black liberation movement against police brutality this week by interviewing one of our great friends and comrades, Ronnie Almonte, who's a New York City teacher and who has been active for years in the fight against racism here in the education system in New York City. Yeah, and in just the last couple months, hey, there's the police. In just the last couple months, Ronnie's been busy organizing rallies to get police out of schools, transfer money from policing to education. So we're going to play right now a clip that he gave at a rally just last month. I am black. I am Latino. I am a UFT dues-paying member, and I'm angry. On July 21st, 2016, de announced the elimination of suspensions for students in kindergarten through second grade. It took the UFT leadership only a few hours to respond, opposing the ban on suspending kindergartners. Do you know how long it took the UFT leadership to respond to George Floyd's murder? Eight days. Eight days to publish two sentences that frankly said nothing. Yeah, so you can see why we're pretty excited to be talking to Ronnie tonight. Um, But before we get to that interview, we want to bring some headlines from the last week. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed into law the Tenant Safe Harbor Act, which extends the partial moratorium on on evictions. This new law will prevent the eviction of tenants who can prove that they've been financially impacted by the COVID pandemic for as long as any part of their uh, local region is shut down by pandemic measures. But like all the previous laws that have been passed in New York, it doesn't actually cancel any rent. So, Lupita, you're a housing caseworker. What do you think of this law? Hmm. Well, I mean, we've definitely seen the protests outside of courthouses already from the partial opening of of the courthouses. And I can tell you that legal workers are definitely not looking forward um, to the lifting of the of the eviction moratorium in this way or 
just the partial relief of people who can prove that they've been uh, going through hardships throughout these months. It definitely doesn't cover undocumented workers or even people who uh, are citizens but may not be working in the in the formal working sector. And so they may not have either the medical documents because of a lack of health care or the work unemployment documents that they would need to prove to the housing court case judges so that they could get relief from evictions. Um, we're also expecting a backlog in eviction cases throughout the city. And so that's definitely not going to be looking good for working class New Yorkers and for the legal workers who are going to be exposed um, in courthouses to the ongoing pandemic as well. Huh. Wow, that's um, that's troubling. And um, speaking of unsatisfying half measures that people are trying to pass off as reforms, what do you have next for headlines? Yeah, one of the other biggest news, and I think one that many people says adds insult to injury, is the city council uh, budget, annual budget that was passed uh, this last week. It's, be- it's already become a focal point for protesters who've been demanding significant budget cuts to the NYPD and for that money instead to be invested in some of the social programs that are actually being cut in this budget. Um, but what we saw was that Mayor, Mayor Bill de Blasio and the city council majority you know, claim that they were able to achieve major savings and budget cuts to policing, while many activists say that when you actually look at the math, some of that is very superficial changes. But Danny, I know that you've been looking into that issue. What do you what do you think of the budget? Yeah, well, I think I think that's right. I would I would just start by saying sometimes when they're, you know, after a budget like this, though, you'll see a division where some of the more radical activists are critical and maybe some of the more uh, moderate ones are, are saying, no, this is the best we can get. That's not what's happening right now. It's pretty universal criticism among activists and advocates that this um, this budget simply does not meet the demands of the protesters, which I guess shows how powerful this movement has been, that like a major reduction in the police budget doesn't meet it. But it's also, like you said, because the reduction is very superficial. It doesn't lead to an actual reduction in policing, uh, which the protest has been about. And in fact, at a time when de Blasio is talking about having to lay off tens of thousands of city workers and have a hiring freeze across city government, it doesn't even have a complete hiring freeze on adding new um, cops. So beyond that, in terms of where the money comes from in this billion dollar um, change, part of it is is that they're claiming they're going to significantly reduce police overtime. But that's just that's something they say. But then in the next breath, de Blasio even said, well, we actually have no control in case of an emergency. Um, which is a slap in the face to this movement that has been saying the police are the wrong response to almost every emergency that people can possibly face. So it sh- that in itself shows not really getting it. And then also a major source of this reduction in funds was basically transferring the personnel of school safety officers from the NYPD ledger to the Department of Education ledger. This, it kind of remains to be seen, could end up having a real positive impact if that shift leads to a major transformation in these jobs from being policing jobs to being maybe part of more like education-centric jobs. But the jury's just still out on that yet. And, P- and it also could end up being that these people are doing the same, you know, it varies school by school, but often like policing jobs just under the budget of the Department of Education instead of the NYPD. Um, and so in response to this unsatisfactory budget, a lot of the protesters who have been occupying City Hall Park in the lead up to the budget have decided to keep on occupying City Hall Park past that original day and they continue it um, 
through through this day. And it, it, just like the Occupy Wall Street protests about 10 years ago in Zuccotti Park, Occupy City Hall has become a focal point for protests across the city. It's something that we're hoping to cover more in depth next week in our show. Um, but for now, Lupita, can you maybe talk about some of the repression that the NYPD has been continuing to deliver to protests um, over the past week? Absolutely. Um, what we've been hearing from protesters is actually that the police has been trying to disperse people from the occupation pretty much every day. And it's actually at different hours. Sometimes it's late at night. Sometimes it's at the crack of dawn when, you know, they maybe believe that protesters are, are don't have their guard up. And so we've definitely seen that repression throughout in, in the last couple of weeks in the city as a whole. Protesters have continued to demonstrate uh, across the city, and we've seen similar repression. A couple of weeks ago, we saw some of the biggest mass arrests of protesters in the Bronx um, right after curfew. Last Sunday, we saw uh, the Queer Liberation March for Black Lives and Against Police Brutality, which was a march that was attended by 50,000 people. It was a huge march, and I think it was actually sort of a replacement to the usual, uh, to the annual Pride parade that we usually have in the city, and it was instead a beautiful protest to celebrate the original Stonewall riots of 1969, which were also against police brutality and which launched the LGBTQ movement in the city and across the country. And while people were marching um, in the celebration, the police attacked protesters with batons, pepper spray, uh, a lot of people suffering injuries and getting arrested uh, and facing injuries from the zip ties that were being used by police as they reached Washington Square Park. And, you know, many protesters are calling out the fact that uh, peaceful protesters are the ones being uh, arrested and facing charges, but cops are actually not even being investigated for some of the violations that, you know, advocates are claiming they are carrying out in using some of these brutal tactics. Um, one other thing that we've seen is that, you know, as you say, overtime for cops is a major part of the annual budget of the NYPD. And throughout these protests, we've seen the overtime of police actually being used to repress protesters. So I think throughout the city, there's a lot of unrest, both around the opening and ongoing protests against police brutality. And we're just going to continue to see that in the headlines. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's one more headline we have to make sure we get to because it actually involves our guest from last week, Robert Cuffey, uh, union organizer, anti-racist activist, somebody who's been very involved in the movement. We had him on last week talking about Black Lives Matter in the labor movement. Well, just this past Monday at a march to defund the NYPD, Robert was peacefully filming the march when he was tackled by an unidentified man from behind, dislocating Robert's shoulders. Police getting all that overtime Uh, simply observed the assault and then actually were seen joking with the attacker before walking him to the subway station and releasing him without charges. It's a pretty disturbing incident. Activists are going to be continuing to pursue justice for Robert, and I'm sure we're going to try to continue that on our show. In the meantime, if anybody would like to donate to Robert's medical bills, we're going to be posting information for how you can do that on the show notes for our, this episode, which we put up at our own website. That's www.wchradio.org. The WCH is for working class heroes. Again, www.wchradio.org. So those are some of the headlines. I'm sure they put you in a patriotic July 4th kind of mood. Uh, we're going to be right back with Ronnie Almonte. Rap 
was in. We thought it was a lockdown. They opened the fire. Them bullets was flying. Who said it was a lockdown? Goddamn lie. Oh my, time heals all, but you out of time now. Judge gotta watch us from the clock tower. Little tear gas cleared the whole place out. I'll be back with the hazmat for the next round. We was trying to protest and the fires broke out. Look out for the secret agents, they be planted in the crowd. Set a civil unrest, but you sleep so sound. Like you don't hear the screams when we catching beat down. Staying quiet when the opinions coming from a place of privilege. Sicker than the COVID, how they did them on the ground. Speaking of the COVID, is it still going around? Won't you tell me about the looting what's that really all about cause they throw away black lives like paper towels plus unemployment rate what 40 million now killed a man in broad day might never see a trial we just want to break chains like slaves in the south started in the north end but we in the downtown riot cops try to block now we got a showdown that was lockdown by anderson pack one of the best songs out there right now and definitely on repeat in my household and now here's finally our interview with ronnie almonte Again, he is a high school science teacher, a delegate at the United Federation of Teachers, and a member of the Social Justice Caucus, which is called the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators, and which most people know as MORE. And this didn't make it into our interview, but I also want to mention that Ronnie Almonte is a birder. He considers himself a black Latino birder who will be spending his summer watching the birds in Prospect Park. So beware, Ronnie Amy talk- Cooper. <laughs> Sorry. Ronnie, talked <laughs> to us about, <laughs> Ronnie talked to us about why New York City schools uh, are so segregated and how racism has played out in schools during the pandemic, as well as how he thinks that teachers' unions should be fighting in the fall for their students. It's a wide-ranging discussion, and we think you're really going to dig it, so stick around that you wanted to be a teacher and why is it important for you to also be an activist within the industry of education? So I always had a love for science, which is the subject I teach. Um, But since I was in high school, you know, growing up um, during the Iraq war, um, growing up in an extremely segregated uh, neighborhood and growing up in an immigrant family whose members were you know, domestic workers and restaurant workers, kind of all that made me feel like, you know, I needed to make an impact somehow um, and that I could, you know, I could with other people actually kind of make things better um, because they're they're not really that good for working people right now. Um, But when I went into college, you know, I got really uh, hooked onto biology and I became a researcher and I went to study in Chicago and I always had a love for education as well, because I had a great, I felt like I had a great education and great professors um, at, in college, especially. Um, so when I, you know, went to Chicago to, to actually do research and to study, I was studying to become a biochemist. It, it so happened that there was a, you know, this union of teachers uh, organized into the Chicago Teachers Union who were ready to go on strike. Uh, why? Because they were getting paid too little. Okay, that's understandable. But because, you know, the students that they served were, uh, you know, were, were being hurt by the, the policies of the city that prioritized the interests of the rich over the interests of uh, the black and brown students in public education. And I saw the Chicago teachers gearing up, uh, getting ready to possibly strike, and then they did. And I saw them strike, uh, and I joined them on the picket lines. And, you know, I felt that, 
you know, this is something I could do. Um, I had already thought about becoming an educator at some point in my life. Um, but when I saw the Chicago teachers leverage their power, not just for better working conditions, which in itself is important, but by equating their working conditions to their students' learning conditions, um, that spoke volumes to me. And it showed me that um, as a teacher, you can actually fight simultaneously um, for improving your kind of day-to-day -day livelihood and for, um, you know, you can fight for racial justice all at the same time. And in fact, you can't really do one well without doing the other um, in, in a system as segregated and as racist as the city of Chicago, as the cities of the United States, as the United States itself. Um, so I think for me that that really motivated me to leave my program um, at the University of Chicago, move back home to New York and to become a teacher. Um, and not just a teacher who teaches biology, but a teacher who teaches biology in context because the history of science itself is not uh, immune to um, you know, moments and instances of, of racism um, and of empowerment as well uh, of, of black and brown uh, people. Um, and so I kind of wanted to, in the classroom, kind of teach a generation or many generations, hopefully, of young people about kind of that overlapping history of science and of social justice. Um, but I also wanted to kind of use my position as a teacher to also kind of encourage that way of thinking around uh, among my coworkers and my union brothers and sisters. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do today, right? When we're trying to, you know, get the UFT uh, membership to, to endorse police-free schools and to uh, endorse defunding the NYPD, um, that's, that's part of that of that work and um, it's hard work, but I'm, I'm happy to be doing it. And I think more and more teachers, a wider and wider, wider layer of education workers are, um, are also coming to those conclusions. We want to switch gears now to talk about the current uprising around racism. And for people who aren't necessarily involved in public education, it can seem like suddenly out of nowhere, there's protests and there's demands for defunding the police and putting that money into schools. But it's actually been the result of, of years of organizing, you know, one of those channels being this annual Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action, which I know is something you've been involved in. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about some of those years of organizing, how they maybe built a bridge from the previous heights of struggle after Ferguson, you know, when there, when, when people were, were out in the streets to today. And, and do you feel like that there's years of organizing around things like Black Lives Matter at schools have helped make more teachers today supportive of calls to defund the police? Absolutely. I think it's important to remember that the uh, Black Lives Matter at school kind of movement is made up of educators who've gone through struggles from earlier in the decade and even before this decade, right? You think about the, you know, educators in Seattle who, you know, led a movement against testing. And, you know, you think about even as far back as the uh, Wisconsin uprising, right, where teachers and other public sector workers are protesting, um, you know, the state's efforts to to privatize and to, and to bust uh, the, the unions of that state. Um, and, you know, we can go back also to the Chicago Teachers Union strike of 2012, 
um, which was largely um, a response to uh, not not just the the defunding of education in the abstract, but the way that impacted you know black and brown communities and students and families in in Chicago, um, you know, and and the CTU. Um, at the, during that strike had been using language in their literature on the picket lines about housing, about policing, using language like apartheid schooling and the school of prison pipeline. They used that language back in 2012. Um, so, you know, educators um, who are involved in this Black Lives Matter at school movement um, have, you know, either directly been through those struggles or, you know, had been learning from them and participating in their own way uh, in, in, their, in their districts. Um, and of course, there's just the Black Lives Matter movement itself, right? Um, and the fact that, you know, Trayvon Martin and, uh, you know, all these, uh, a lot of these young Black men were, were uh, and, and women, you know, were young and were the students of, of teachers, you know, and that wasn't lost on, on educators. Um, and so those demands today, right, about like, um, you know, removing cops from, uh, from schools and, and using that money instead to, to hire counselors. I mean, those, those demands are kind of a continuation of the work that we've been doing historically, right, and fighting segregation and fighting the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, and even back to when we were fighting against budget cuts, right, um, cuts that um, in 2008 during the Great Recession, you know, haven't yet been been restored to, to you know, pre-recession levels, um, even though policing in general itself has increased in our schools and, of course, increased in society. And we're seeing now that de Blasio is, you know, practically refusing to cut any of the NYPD's budget, but is, you know, telling, um, you know, other public servants that, you know, they can expect to get hit hard and they can expect 22,000 layoffs and that they can, um, you know, expect, uh, you know, the education department can expect a $1 billion cut. Um, so that's not lost on on us and, you know, us being able to kind of like connect those dots. Um, that's been a work in progress for a pretty long time. So I think what the Black Lives Matter at school movement has done is provided kind of institutional memory, right? Memory of, of those struggles in the past. Um, and it's provided, um, you know, an opportunity for the movement today not to have to start from scratch, right? We've had demands for the past few years. Um, and we've had a layer of teachers um, in their own way as a smaller group, you know, talking with their coworkers and protesting and doing actions for, for the past three years um, around these demands that are now getting a lot more more resonance, right? Like now we've, you know, that work in the past few years has put us in a position where we can, you know, take uh, take advantage of the opportunity that's uh, of the new mo mo uh, moment, right? To educate our coworkers um, and to get them plugged in uh, in their community and their unions, um, to pressure city governments and school boards and even their own union officials to to adopt finally, um, you know, the demands that we've been we've been raising, um, which include you know hiring more educators of color, um, you know, and of course hiring more counselors and other mental health. Uh, providers and, and, and not cops. In this whole wide world.
Oh, that was Jennifer Hudson killing it at this year's BET Awards, singing Nina Simone's classic Young, Gifted, and Black. You are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. And now back to the second part of our interview with Ronnie Almonte. City is kind of touted as like a melting pot of, you know, all kinds of cultures and nationalities. And we don't really talk about how much actually New York City public school system is one of the most segregated school mm-hmm. systems in the country. And I was sort of wondering, you know, how you would explain how segregation in New York City public high schools kind of plays out and what it looks like. Um, and I think why why this is the case in, in such a quote unquote liberal city. Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. I think one thing to kind of keep in mind is that near the history of school segregation um, and public education in New York City are so intertwined. Um, in the fifties, you know, some of the most important work that was being done in New York City was around um, was around school uh, segregation. Was very uh, very active at the moment, and the movement in the fifties and early sixties here in New York City, um, led by you know largely black women. Um, you know, they, they fought for integration. They fought against the Board of Education's um, efforts to, um, to build new schools in only Black or only white um, communities. Um, it, it fought against their efforts in, you know, crowding Black schools, uh, but leaving uh, seats vacant in, in white schools. Um, so that has a long history. The, in 1964, right, we saw the biggest civil rights demonstration here in New York City, the biggest civil rights demonstration like ever, when over uh, when about a million students right boycotted uh, the schools on February I think third of 1964. Um, that happened here in New York. So the the history to integrate New York City schools is a a very long one, um, and unfortunately, the struggle still continues. Um, now, the history of anti-integration uh, uh, is also very much a New York uh, phenomenon. Um, it was here that uh, over the Brooklyn Bridge, thousands of white women uh, protested uh, against school integration. And when the Civil Rights Act of 64 was being debated, um, this was not that action was not lost on, um, you know, New York politicians and another uh, and other politicians at, at the time. Um, and then so, you know, the outcome of, of that was to kind of create this myth of de facto segregation as a way to kind of let uh, the North, including New York, off the hook um, and avoid integration mandates from the federal government. Um, so. You know, not just locally, but the the history of school segregation in New York City has had nationwide uh, implications and consequences. Um, and so today, the way that segregation looks like, or at least the way it's talked about in, in the media and then among among the community, is oftentimes people talk about the SHSAT, and the SHSAT is this uh, test that students opt in to taking and preparing for outside of the school day in order to access this kind of elite system of schools called the specialized high schools. And except for one of them, all the specialized high schools, of which there are about eight, um, they require um, 
a certain score on the SHSAT um, in order to be eligible for enrollment. And where you score um, kind of dictates what schools you're allowed to kind of access, whether that be Brooklyn Tech or Stuyvesant being some of the most competitive ones. The SHSAT it itself was enshrined into law in 1971 to actually block the diversification of the specialized high schools. Um, this law, which was called the Heck Calandra Act, um, it basically protected the these specialized high schools from the consequences of a of a looming city investigation on racial discrimination. Also, it it, it needs to be said that this law was enacted in the wake of a of a desegregation movement in New York City that in 1968 culminated into a, a race, basically a racial confrontation between the white dominated teachers union, my union, the UFT, um, and the black led uh, community control movement um, at, at the time. So this kind of maneuvering on New York's uh, part um, allowed it to avoid integration mandates that other city cities um, were were issued, like Chicago, for example, um, where in 1980, the city of Chicago um, agreed, made an agreement with the federal government to start using race as a factor in admissions to magnet and selective enrollment schools. And if you compare the those selective enrollment schools here in New York City to the ones in Chicago, although Chicago is beyond perfect when it comes to uh, integration, it's not integrated really at all, um, we do see a, a higher level of uh, desegregate or diversity in, in Chicago's elite schools, public schools compared to, to New York. So, you know, and, and I think one thing that we often hear um, today about segregation is that it's a holdover um, from the past. But um, strikingly, when you look at the percentage of, let's say, black students enrolled at one of the specialized high schools, Brooklyn Tech, um, you know, we see that actually about half of Students at Brooklyn Tech were black in 1985, but now they're they make up six percent of the student population. And you know, you see that at Stuyvesant High School, for example, that the most selective, uh, which is the most selective specialized high school, it it last year made offers to about only seven or eight um, black students out of about 900 spots. So in New York City, we have um, because of school segregation we have this kind of two-tiered system, right? At least two tiers. Uh, one reserved for the more privileged end and the bottom tier for mostly black and brown students in this city. Oye, esto es para mi pueblo con cariño de la Vallarde, con dilleada y cachete, el majadero de los cueros, para mi pueblo que tanto quiero, de Calderón para lo hice entero, oye. Ando sin prisa, pero tu lentitud me coleriza. Y es que no brega con no visa. No, no brega. Me quiere hacer pensar que soy parte de una trilogía racial donde todo el mundo es igual. Si trato especial, te perdona. Le tú que no te sabes disculpar. No es como justifica tanto mal. Me ah. tu historia es vergonzosa, entre otras cosas. Cambiaste la cadena por esposa. No todos somos iguales, en términos legales. Y eso está probado en los tribunales. En lo claro, la justicia se tiene con cascajo. Oye, por eso estamos como estamos.
That was Loisa by Tego Calderon, an absolute classic. And you're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio right here on WBAI 99.5 FM, New York's main source of community radio. And finally, here's our final part of the interview with Ronnie Almonte, who's speaking to us about the fight for public education and the fight to get cops out of New York City schools. After that, we hope to have a live discussion, so get ready to call in. Different questions on the table that are actually going to affect teachers in many ways. How do you see the union reacting in these next couple of months? And, you know, how do you expect them or how would you want them to react to the to the couple of months that we're heading into in the fall? You know, I'm I'm a little discouraged um, by the union's response to, you know, several uh, events in the past few few months. Um, one was is the delay in responding uh, to uh, the demands to close schools and earlier in, the, in March. Um, the second was the response that finally came out, which was, you know, threatening a lawsuit, which is, you know, really mild uh, given the, the um, you know, the consequences, right, um, that we're seeing of, you know, leaving the schools open for as long as they, as they did. Um, kind of the third is the fact that um, once we transitioned into remote learning, um, there wasn't really an agreement or a memorandum of agreement, right? There wasn't a contract um, that, you know, that the union negotiated with the city in order to govern our rights, right, under remote learning. And, that's, and there's still not one. And what that had resulted in was different schools, different administrations kind of forcing teachers to do um, unreasonable things. Um, and, you know, other other districts had negotiated memorandum uh, of, of agreements like in L.A., um, but that that never happened here in New York City, despite, you know, our our call for the union for the UFT to actually negotiate one. You know, and the fourth was the fact that uh, when DOE canceled our spring break in April, um, the UFT actually went along with it. And, you know, the the reasoning that the mayor gave that the UFT leadership endorsed for uh, canceling spring break is that the kids need to be in front of a screen so that they don't go out um, and spread the virus, right? Because if we weren't in front of, you know, the screens teaching them with them, um, engaged, then they would go out. And basically what that was saying was that black and brown families don't know how to play their role in flattening the curve. And if we're not there to, you know, kind of keep them indoors, then they'll go out and be reckless and spread the, the virus. And that was the messaging. And I, and I think, you know, the racial undertones uh, actually spoke volumes there. And it's unfortunate that the UFT went along with it. So I'm, and now with the response to, you know, the most recent, you know, rebellion against police brutality um, and, you know, really systemic racism. Um, you know, the UFT has uh, leadership has produced an underwhelming response, not even by the standards of the left, but by the standards of just other teacher unions who have endorsed the call to defund uh, their city's uh, police departments to remove police from campuses. The UFT has said nothing, has endorsed nothing of the sort. Seems to me from from what from what you're saying, so much of De Blasio and the DOE's 
response to coronavirus, but the ongoing, just the day-to-day administration of schools has to be seen through a white power structure, you know what I mean, dedicated to this sort of corporate education agenda that's being, that, that they're, they're putting a mostly black and brown student body and family families and public school community through. And then when we come to think about the fall plans where admittedly there's no easy answers, but the various discussions about some schools will be open part of the time and some won't with no no input, no guidance from mm-hmm. families and their child care needs and their work similarly to the way that from the beginning of the pandemic there was no sense that like teacher educators and parents we need to be in the lead about what are their needs right now you know the the absurdity of trying to keep up with state guidelines of learning when people are just sitting in front of video screens you know there's something it would be comical if it wasn't so right um tragic And, and then there's something where we're heading it seems to me like for more of that in the fall when and at the same time, there's an ongoing rebellion, which, you know, by September, people may not be in the streets every day the way they are now, just because that's not usually the way these things work. But there's but things will still be very different. And just to throw one other aspect of it, there may, you know, there there is a depression happening, an economic depression, as well as the depression many of us feel emotionally with, with coronavirus, that um, is the, the, which would could lead to massive budget cuts, all these things happening at the same time. And, and I don't expect you to necessarily have an answer for like, here's exactly what, what, what to do. But, but as a delegate in the union, as an activist, as someone who's, who's been a, a voice for, for a while around the sense, you know, the need to fight segregation and racial inequity in the school system, what, what do you make of, of this coming moment? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, look, I think, um, as a union, we just we have to accept that what you know that the that the mayor and the city government just simply can't they can't be trusted, right? They've proven to be incapable of dealing with the uh, with, with with the pandemic. Um, but there are but we have to accept that there are real reasons for that. It's not just because they're stupid, um, but it's because that they're they're responding to. Um, you know, to a set of economic interests that are opposed to the majority's well-being, right? So when when Mayor de Blasio said we can't just close the schools, you know, we have to keep them open for our kids, um, you know, that was disingenuous because you could have closed the schools and instead by taxing the wealthy, you could have, you know, set up a, a really sophisticated network of uh, of like aid centers, right, being housed in the school buildings that are now empty um, instead of making people go back to work. Um, or to stay at work when the city was shutting down, um, you could have given them a stipend like other countries have, you know, instead of this kind of one federal government, uh, one, you know, $1,200 check from the federal government, and then, you know, some unemployment for a little bit, which of course didn't go into the pockets of undocumented workers uh, here in the city who, who, you know, who have been suffering the most, right, um, from the consequences of, of the new economic recession. And in this way, de Blasio and, and Cuomo are very little, uh, they're, they're very, um, they differ very little from Trump in this respect and that they're responding to, their decisions are responding to the needs of their employers, right? And, and, their, and their objective to, to make profit. Um, so hence why, even though the cases across the country are, um, are not declining and they're actually increasing in most parts of the country still, 
um, you know, there's talk in this corner of the country about reopening. Um, it's it's really bananas. So we can't we can't trust that, you know, when the mayor says we'll reopen because now it's safe, because um, we know that he's responding to um, the needs of the uh, of the rich, right? And the rich want to continue making profit. Uh, and the way they make profit is from the backs of working people. Um, and, you know, in that way, avoid actually taxing those very, very rich people and instead giving that money to, to people so that they can, um, you know, stay safe indoors um, with low exposure and risk. Um, so I want to see a movement. I want to see unions that accept that. Um, and start connecting the dots between that and the police, right? The police budget. I, instead of a, of a UFT, for example, that says, uh, just accept that there will be accessing, but don't worry, we'll do it, we'll do it fairly. Um, I want to see a UFT that says, we're not going to, you know, give a single dime, you know, uh, we're not going to give up anything. And in fact, we want more money because, our kids and our adults have gone through a very traumatic experience and we need more counselors. We need uh, more social workers. By the way, um, those mental health providers in, the, in, in education, um, their numbers pretty much match the entire police force in the DOE. So we have more cops and counselors. We have more cops and social workers. That's the status quo and de Blasio wants to cut that further. That is completely unacceptable. This is a moment where we need more funding. And in fact, this could be a turning point, right, in, in education. Um, this could be a moment where we say, like, we're actually not going to go along anymore with concessionary bargaining, with cutting education, as we as has been done for decades. Um, and we're definitely not going to cut education now when uh, it had been cut during the Great Recession 12 years ago and, and levels have never been restored. So we're not going to accept that at all. Um, and the only thing that we'll accept is tremendously increased funding at the expense of police budgets and at the expense of uh, the rich who are getting richer and uh, whose numbers are highest here in, in the very city that de Blasio claims there is no money anymore for, uh, for education, for other uh, social services. I charge my crystals in a full moon. You can send them missiles, I'ma send my goons. Baby sister rapping in my yard. Trust me, they gon' need an army. Rubber bullets bouncing on me. Made a picket sign up your picket fist. Take it as a warning. Waste beats from your Uber. For honey, Billy, that's a Musa. Straw line to the barbecue. Put us any damn way, we gon' make it look cute. Pandemic fly on the runway in my hazmat. Children running through the house in my art all black. On the wall, let the ghost chit chat. Hold my hands, we gon' pray together. Lay it down, face down in the gravel. Me wearing all tie white to the funeral. Black love, we gon' stay together. Curtain name feel on the speaker. Little Malcolm, my mission, Mama Tina. Need another march, let me call Tamika. Need peace and reparation for my people. All right, that was from Beyonce's new song, Black Parade. And that is the end of our interview with Ronnie Almonte. It gave us so much to think about. Unfortunately, Ronnie isn't able to join us to answer your calls, but we would still love to hear about your experiences and opinions about racism and other issues in the New York City education system and how we're going to address it in this time of pandemic, budget cuts, and protests. 
But for now, let's uh, open up the lines for some callers so that we can do that. Caller, you can call us at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. And while we wait for some callers, Danny, what, what was the thing that you took away from Ronnie's interview the most? Um, I know that for me, one of the details that he sort of mentioned that really stuck out is, you know, how the city plans and actually gave notice that there could be a billion dollar cut to education, which is maybe not coincidentally, the amount that protesters are asking is cut instead from the NYPD. And so, you know, it almost feels comical that that's not exactly, you know, that that's not the common sense that politicians have to make a billion-dollar cut to the NYPD so that we can invest that in New York City high schools, New York City public education in general. And for sure, you know, growing up myself in, in public education, I feel like budget cuts has been the norm for the for the last decades in, in New York City and across the country. And it just feels that such a disconnect with um, most of the protests that are happening, not just here, but but across the country. Yeah, um, before I respond, I'll just repeat again. The number to call us is 212-209-2877. Wait, I messed that up. Let me try that again. 212-209-2877. There you uh, go. So give us a call. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think it doesn't take me that long. But, um, yeah, while, while we're waiting on this holiday for you know to get a call, I'll just say – Partly, in some ways, that's what makes so insulting the budget uh, where they said, oh, OK, sure, we'll transfer the school safety officers from the police budget to the education budget. You know what I mean? Which is not addressing the massive cuts that they're that they're talking about bringing. Like that's that's not restoring the budget uh, to education or actually increasing it that Ronnie wanted. And and I think what's what's truly frightening, right, is that um, while they are talking about decreasing the city budget, we actually need a massive increase in the city budget, even beyond the longstanding starving of New York City public schools. But every plan during this pandemic that involves some kind of common, you know, everyone agrees that if you're going to have fewer people in schools, you actually need more resources. If you're going to have more people at home doing remote learning, you, you need more resources. And, and, you know, so the DOE, since we did this interview, they released uh, some more details about uh, tentative plans for reopening in the fall. And one, while I would be the first one to admit that there are no easy solutions to what to do with the schools in this time, something that I think is really alarming from the perspective of the issues Ronnie was raising about segregation is they're talking about families having the option to completely opt out of going to school and just do a full remote learning program. And that's definitely one way that they're going to try to alleviate crowding in the schools and try to make the people going, you know, the, the schools more fit for social distancing. And there's so much to talk about with all those issues. But when you just think about what we already saw during the pandemic about the segregated state of who was able to work from home and who had to go to work. And then you think about what that would mean about having some which students would end up having to ride trains and buses and, and, and go to sort of dangerous schools and who would be staying home and doing remote learning, which, by the way, the remote learning is is far from perfect. But it's pretty frightening about even further advancing the segregation of our schools. And part of the issue of segregation is then 
if more white middle class people are doing the remote learning from home, then maybe there will start being more catering to those resources and, and under-reporting about the conditions happening in schools. Anyway, th- there's a lot to say about it, and I think it's probably something we'll keep reporting on. But that's, you know, that, that, that's something that came out even since we did the interview with Ronnie. No, absolutely. And I think just a complete hesitance and, and really refusal to instead tax New York City's millionaires and billionaires, which, as Ronnie mentioned, is, is you know, um, one of the phenomenon that he's noticed from city politicians oh, and from the so, union. Sorry, sorry to interrupt um, so, you. It sounds like we have two callers, right? Yeah, let's get to it. Okay. So caller Hello. number one, thank you for calling. Yes, what's your name? Can you hear us? Hi, my name is Kimu. I'm calling from Honolulu, Hawaii. Welcome, Hello there. And just, pardon? We're just welcoming you. Oh, well, okay. Calling from Honolulu, Hawaii. I just you see some very similarities of what's going on, mainly people uh, called the Howleys, the white people who come from the mainland. It seem like they control the education system. Wow. How does that, how does, what does that look like in Hawaii? Well, Hawaii uh, is you got people who come from the mainland, and they've been there for like a few generations. you got... Hikimeli people, plus you got other Pacific Island people, um, people from Samoa, Tonga, uh, the Marshall Islands, uh, Guam, um, <clears throat> Tahiti, and you know a lot of them are really struggling. Then you got a wealthy elite, you know, of uh, uh, people from let's say China and uh, Chinese and Korean and Philippine. Filipinos, and it's a really class, you know, it's a really class-based society in Hawaii. Wow. So if you don't mind, I can ask, just, I'd like to ask you one more follow-up question about that. You know, we, we in this interview with Ronnie, we were talking about segregation in the schools. Is, is one of the ways that this takes place sort of a segregation in terms of different schools or maybe in terms of who's in the sort of... Um, Magnet programs or elite schools. What what mm-hmm. what's your experience? And with also, that thing? you have the uh, the more uh, the Mormon Church is very influential too. Wow. Yeah. No. I, it seems to me that the dynamics are. And thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for that 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 call, Kima. We're, we're gonna um, go on to our next caller. But I just I, it does seem like the dynamics in each location. You know, every every place has a very different history. Ronnie talked about the differences in New York and Chicago. It's really. It's really great to hear about um, a place like Hawaii with with, with that. Um, but the, the, what you talked about about the class distinctions and the way education is a tool for sorting out um, people with different classes and what people you know demand of that education system to be that definitely seems to be pretty universal. Um, can we can we get the next call? Hello. Yes. Hello. hello? Welcome to Working Class Heroes. Yes. Can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear? Yes. Yes. Am I on? You are on. Oh, Welcome. Great. Okay, listen, you know, first of all, I caught the uh, somewhat of the end of your program. Very interesting, noting how education in various areas of uh, the country is uh, basically suffering from the corona, and uh, uh, people are, are trying to uh, basically adjust to school schooling in-house 
and, uh, ver- you know, by your, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, Internet. And I'm on Long Island, and I thought it quite interesting because, yes, a million dollars uh, cut from the police budget to go to other areas and taking out the school of uh, the police uh, guards in school but here on Long Island uh, Nassau County we have a situation where they're building schools they are adding on to uh, various buildings and renovating and in one particular area there's an increase they say uh, of students that was last year but there is no other school district in the area that is increasing in population and the population of the community is stuck with a budget that uh, number one was not finalized so we don't know what's going to go on next year And number two, they have a bond of $158 million, which they are about to begin construction. And I think it's it's just insane. The way you're there. No, absolutely. Thank you. And people out here, they've lost their jobs. You know, they, they can't pay the rent or the mortgage. They have no play. I mean, it's just uh, the busing is terrible. All right. So what are we going to do in September? There are some schools where the students at the latter part received, some students received Internet iPads in order to do lessons. Some students haven't had a lesson since school was closed. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. You know, I don't know the details of what's going on in Long Island, but I think that in general what you're saying is true, that there's just a disconnect about how funding happens and then what the funding is used for. And so I think that, you know, I think Ronnie mentioned that um, it's not just about the building of schools, but where they're built, how they're built, and also how they're governed, you know, the way that public education in general is is governed right now by the interest of, of millionaires and administered by politicians who are really out of touch. And I think that that is the big question right now is what is going to happen in September. Um, so unfortunately, we are out of time for tonight. Again, thank you so much to our both to both of our callers who, you know, really are reinforcing sort of this idea that Ronnie's putting out there that people right now want to be part of the decision-making in their localities. They want to be considered in the budgeting that is happening in, this, in cities across America and that there's a huge disconnect with that. This is no longer an issue, you know, of a small minority. This is something that people, for people, is common sense. And we're definitely going to continue to report on this. If you follow us on social media, we will continue to report on continued protests and efforts um, to tackle this issue of education. Um, But right now we are out of time. We do want to take some time to thank all of our audience for tuning in to what is our 10th show here on WBAI. And also thank our engineer Giovanni for all of his hard work Mm -hmm. making this show happen. 
You're welcome. See you next week. This ain't no time where the usual want to sue the ball. Tonight alive, let's describe the inscrutable, the indisputable. What? We New York, the narcotics. Straight to metal and fiber optics. We're mercenaries paid to trade hot stocks in for profits. Thirsty criminals, dick pockets. Hot knuckles on the second hands of working class watches. Skyscrapers is colossus. The cost of living is preposterous. Stay alive, you play and die, no options. No Batman and Robin. Can't tell between the